0: Welcome to On The Other Side, where we talk crypto culture and society and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the sponsors that make this episode possible. In this show, we talk all about the human side of Web3 and the philosophy around Web3. But when you're ready to get your hands dirty, Rabbit Hole is the place to go. Rabbit Hole curates all of the wildness of Web3 into one simple place where users can go to be directed towards positive sum protocols and build their skill set as they do it. In this episode, we talk about identity and privacy, and Rabbit Hole just launched an onboarding to Lens quest, which allows you to own your own identity and social graph on-chain with Lens Protocol. You can check it out at rabbithole.gg. Thank you, Rabbit Hole, for sponsoring On the Other Side. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Anastasia Yuglova, who is a privacy researcher focused on the intersection of consent, agency, and crypto. Anastasia also heads up communications brand and ecosystem development at Lighthouse, which is an open metaverse navigation engine. Anastasia, I am so excited to have you on the show. I feel like privacy is top of mind for everyone right now. So I cannot wait to dive into privacy and crypto, how those things intersect and are sometimes more oppositional. But before we dive into that, do you want to give a little bit of background on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole? Definitely.
1: So I have always been in media and digital media as well. So like media meaning news. I worked at NBC. I worked at NPR. I also worked in politics for a while and in a couple of political magazines and then digital media. So how do we bring that information to people using technology formats? I spent six years working in Rwanda, uh, focused on workforce development for women and people who are trying to break into the official job market and better themselves and their families. So I was working in edtech in East Africa. And after six years, it was really time for me to come back home. I wanted to get back to the States. I wanted to start to architect a relevant career here because the things you do in tech and in education and really in anything in East Africa or in any emerging economy are very different than the kinds of things and problems that you focus on in countries like the United States. So it was like, okay, so how does my tech career translate back to anything I might do in New York and DC or San Francisco? And this was 2016, 2017. That was exactly when the Cambridge Analytica scandal hit, which for me, it, just, it was like a light bulb moment because... I'm a U.S. citizen, but Russian birth. So for me, it was like, oh, uh, I have a responsibility here if I want to keep my new country free and on track with the ideals of open societies and not devolve into the kind of like nightmare hellscape that Russia is right now. So that was 2016, 2017. I pretty much knew I was, I was going to get into privacy somehow. And I had this like, grand idea of like, I'm going to figure out consumer privacy for all of technology. Well, at least that was the impetus for me getting into the space. And then eventually pursuing my master's in infosec and privacy in 2020 and 2021, because it was just a great time to take a step back and say, you know what, if everyone's on hold, I'm going to go back to grad school and just like read some books. And nothing I came across in grad school made any sense in terms of like, how do we rein in the, the power of large technology companies so that they start to work in allegiance with like human ends instead of kind of working against those ends. Um, Nothing I came across made sense because it was all focused on either like really downstream regulation. So like trying to patch over a problem after the fact without actually looking at its source. So, you know, regulation just always seemed to be like, I don't know, washing your hands of the problem or just patching over it. And then privacy by design, which just seemed like begging people at scale to do better, which obviously doesn't doesn't work. You can't beg people at scale to do better. You have to provide the right incentives to align with the right outcomes that you want to see. Um, Until I started to really explore what are the uh, conditions that produce surveillance capitalism. Like if I take it apart and I look at the component parts, what are they? Can I name them? So I started picking it apart. And one of the things I kept coming back to is we don't provision our own identities on the web as users. Because the web isn't built that way. It was built for like protocols to talk to each other. We didn't really, at the time, think about what if humans showed up online and started to talk to each other? What would that look like? So the best available proxy that we just sort of like scaffolded on top of was the email address. And right there is already this like power equation where someone is or a company provisions you something under a set of terms that you most likely don't understand. Certainly have no input into like architecting those terms, and now you are sort of at the mercy of how that company treats your data. So that's sort of the first problem is identity. And so once I figured that out, it was self-sovereign identity, and then from that, it was like, well, crypto is no longer just an investment for me. I've got to get into this space, and that was around summer fall twenty twenty one.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love that, and I think when when we chatted prior to recording in our little like prep session, one of the things that you talked about that I thought was really interesting and grounding for me was and, – and you mentioned it here – was this notion of like if humans showed up in these spaces and we don't take for granted the current architecture, we sort of say how would we design these things? We probably wouldn't design the internet that we have today in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's like really really powerful as a way to think about this stuff. So mm-hmm. I want to dive into like that as a mental model. I guess mm-hmm. before we do that, it's probably worth laying some groundwork on privacy and what it means to you as a concept when you're thinking about things like privacy. Like what is the the base foundation understanding of privacy for this conversation?
1: Yeah. Privacy is so tough. Um, In fact, the reason that we don't have better kind of governance over it or laws or legislation about it is because it's been really difficult to nail down one single definition of what privacy is in order to be able to like, then give a rule about it. Like, okay, privacy is is this thing. Here's the noun. Here's how it operates. And here's how we will like rule privacy everywhere across all contexts. That doesn't really exist. Because privacy is really context dependent. And a really interesting source of like for further research and reading and just like fascination for me and for anyone interested in this is definitely Helen Nissenbaum's work, who's done really groundbreaking research, not even research work, because she architected this idea of just contextual integrity and privacy. So it's you have different privacy boundaries depending on what context you're in. Like you might have very low privacy boundaries when you're hanging out at the doctor's office and you want to easily share information between doctors, but you have much higher privacy boundaries when you show up in like a government office and you don't really want the people sitting in your in the waiting room next to you to know all your information, right? And you might have a kind of somewhere in between privacy boundary when you create a social profile. And even then within the profile, you might have different privacy boundaries depending on who you're contacting and whom you're talking to and which circles you're in versus like the entire web of everyone that is your friend. So because it's so difficult to name what privacy is, it's been also really difficult to rule it. Um, and so far, like the best we've done, and this is so antiquated, we have like privacy torts, we have four privacy torts, we created them, I don't, I think it was like in the like last century, and I don't mean the 20th century, I mean the 19th century, and they're all based on harms. Like you have to demonstrate a specific harm, like taking your likeness without your permission or someone has like impeded on your on your seclusion, like in your home or something. So that's a very clear harm. And the kinds of privacy harms that we experience today aren't so clear because they don't immediately hit you. They accumulate. Like it doesn't immediately become apparent why it's so pernicious that Amazon might have the entire map of your home because they've now bought iRobot, which is in, like it's a vacuum that maps your home. You don't really see that until you might be able to like correlate that information with other ways that Amazon like determines what to sell you or what to recommend to you and then maybe sells that data to a third party because that's very frequently what happens. But those harms are so far away from the immediate action that it's really even hard to name them, accumulate them, like enumerate them and present them. We haven't really come up with the right lexicon for explaining privacy harms, and yet we need to establish harm in order to have legal standing. So the law fails us in very many ways. And there's an interesting article by a scholar named Anne Bartow. She talks about how privacy doesn't have enough dead bodies. Um, What she means by that is, if we built a physical environment like a bridge, that wasn't built with structural integrity, and it falls and crumbles into like the bay or into the bay, and people die. The person who built the bridge, the engineer that built the bridge, is not going to keep their job, right? Or not going to keep their career. But when we build digital environments that fail structural integrity, right? And we have different ideas of what structural integrity is in in digital spaces, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a baseline of like this is a safe environment and this is not. Um, Then the engineers that built that environment, they do get to keep their jobs because they were never really asked to think about, like, baseline safety. And I don't just mean safety in terms of content moderation. I mean safety in terms of, like, what what works with human cognition? Like, does this preserve my autonomy as a human being just going about my day? Am I allowing people to prey off my, like, footprints and my, like, data exhaust? So that's why privacy is so really, really difficult to protect because we don't really even know what it is because there's just no way to define it for everyone all across every single context.
0: Yeah. I feel like one of the weirdest parts about the internet that's almost like a paradox is that you feel both alone and also very seen, or maybe it's that you feel alone but you are very seen. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But like something that fundamentally strikes me about the way that we use the internet today, even the way I think kind of that we use crypto sometimes, mm-hmm. though I think that's probably its own its own discussion, <laughs> is just that it's really hard to see, to your point about the bridge falling, like the material impacts of the things that we're doing online. Mm-hmm. And our brains have definitely developed – to like sense and respond, you know, mm-hmm. I say something, I see your face changes to something that looks angry. Mm-hmm. And there's something that goes off my brain and says, "Oh shit, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't really get that online. And even if you do, it's really hard to gauge whether or not it's from the people you care about. and you know, like all of these different things, of course, to the the furthest version of this is like maybe, It was really hard to tell what Facebook's material negative impacts they were creating with our data actually Mm -hmm. was until it was too late. And so I'm curious how that plays a role in how you think about privacy.
1: Yeah. You know, I have to say, I don't think anybody that built any product at Facebook before the revelations actually intentionally created or wanted to create an environment that failed like the demands of like structural integrity. That wasn't the point. It was just that we discovered after the fact, like, oh, these, some of these architectures aren't really that great for human, but like techno social ends, they actually have some really negative externalities. And we should probably stop building that way. So I don't think any of this ever starts out being pernicious. I can't say the same, though, about like, recent revelations about how like tornado cash has been sanctioned. That's a very pernicious effort to like subvert our privacy that's coming from government, but a totally different question. I think what you're asking about is like what I call context collapse in how we interact in digitally mediated environments, because we, There's something called Dunbar's number, which is, it's like 150. And it's like the number of humans that you can keep in your mind and like have any kind of sufficiently deep or sensible like relationship with. And beyond that number, like the human brain just doesn't scale your relationships well and people start falling off the map or you just like forget, or you just, you can't maintain any depth of relationships. So it doesn't even really make sense to connect with those people except as audiences, right? But we've turned every single interaction into like a performer performer audience interaction. So um I can't just post something on Facebook or especially on Twitter and intended to be for my close friends easily. I'm immediately thinking about how am I performing as a performer and how will my audience react to this and if I think my audience will react poorly then maybe I should perform differently and write something entirely different which is actually in the privacy lexicon called the chilling effect because you're worried about like how your environment will respond to you and so you change what you say to others you change how you even like like your subconcept. concept and you're not given the grace of like talking about these things with just a a set of close friends which might like help you steer your social norms in the right direction and away from the wrong direction you are immediately subjected to like the reaction of the entire audience of like thousands and if you're really off then it's millions right because you have your viral moment and we just like this is new and it's it happened very quickly on a human time scale like we just we really built like products in a matter of years and our cognition has been built over a period of eons and it evolves very slowly. So we haven't evolved the social technologies to adapt to the digital technologies that now intermediate our lives. And that's causing a lot of, I think, social chaos. I was reading this article. It's actually from 2020. It's called The Garden of Forking Memes: How Digital Media Distorts Our Sense of Time. This is a different thing. This isn't just context collapse like In the current moment with all of your friends all the time where you're a performer and there's an audience and that's why it's called digital media like i am a media product like i create media for consumption the garden of forking memes talks about how like the entire history of everything is now available fully at our fingertips and so we no longer have a sense of kind of a shared past that informs our sense of like what the future should look like the entire past is constantly open to interpretation which is wonderful also because it creates all these amazing subcultures but it also means that what we know to be true or what we think to be true is actually subject to a lot of debate so we have trouble sense making as a society and coming to any kind of agreement and you kind of you start to see that with um With the way that political discourse goes, we are getting like further and further and further away from any kind of like shared median of ideas. And it's kind of getting pushed out to the edges and polarization. What does privacy have to do with that? Well, I don't have an easy way to control who sees my information. I don't even have a very easy way to control what or delete things, you know, from my past that maybe don't really represent me anymore. And when everything is available to everyone all the time, forever, immutably, then a lot of negative consequences become our, like, daily reality.
0: Yeah. I feel like my brain goes in two different directions here, too, Mm -hmm. as it relates to Web3. So the first is, like, of course, things being on-chain immutably cannot be deleted, probably fully public. Like, that seems bad in this context. So that is one side. The other side that my brain goes to is Mm – This idea that Tina from Station has written on, she wrote this fantastic piece called The New Frontier of Belonging, and it was all about, like, localization of the internet and the ability to sort of take these, like, new economic models because, of course, Web2 was built on these platforms to your point where people become these, like, micro celebrities. They have huge audiences. Our brains weren't really meant to work that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At least they haven't evolved to that point because of the incentive systems of advertising. And so there's also like an interesting argument to be made that actually crypto by potentially sort of recreating some of these incentive systems and localizing parts of the internet, I'll be like not perfectly, but localizing some parts of the internet hopefully can have maybe a positive impact on some of that. So those are two completely different sides, one sort of pessimistic and one optimistic when it comes to Web3. I'm curious how you think about this intersection of privacy and the moment that we exist in today with this sort of Web3 element that's bringing in a a lot of complexity, it feels like. But yeah, I'm curious how you think about all of that.
1: Yeah, I'm actually very, very happy that we're seeing kind of a fragmentation of how we interact with people into smaller groups, because we we almost have to rebuild our like trust muscles in society. And that doesn't happen in a one to many environment that happens like you and 10 of your friends and maybe like 15 others that join because they really like the vibe of your community. And then like, it kind of grows organically from there, like high trust environments that eventually move to larger, like less trust environments but it's still based on kind of an intimacy which creates the conditions for empathy right now it's like this top-down idea of like let's let's just disambiguate every single political quandary at the highest and most public level and then everybody piles on each other and there's no like shared consensus there's also no shared sense of empathy because it's people talking across a divide where they don't actually have deep relationships So we've kind of like fractured the idea of like empathy and trust entirely. You can only build it up from like the ground up, smaller environments in the DAOs, right in the in the Discord communities, places where you have one to one or one to a few interactions where you're not performing. You're just actually able to be yourself. Um, Ideas and values emerge from there, and I think that's kind of like the key to healing some of the like fractures in society. I'm actually very happy about that now. What I don't think is good is that in attempting to coordinate all of these small communities and subcultures, we want to commit all the things we're doing in those subcultures to a public chain because the people that can access that without proper access controls and without like default private signatures um, are people who are outside of that like trust barrier, outside of that trusted community that may not have the same context on that community or like the same social mores or lore. To understand that community. And that's how you get, well, you get kind of like narrative capture. You get an outsider like writing your story for you and, and interpreting things for you. And then that starts to again fracture things. And so it's really important that as we like rebuild society from the ground up with these smaller communities, that we maintain the ability of the people in those communities to have shared secrets to access control their information, to say, like, I want in my trusted community to share these ideas that bring me closer to my, you know, be vulnerable in front of my friends, but I don't need the whole rest of the world to be part of this narrative for me.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I'm curious, like, so that feels like a design pattern Mm -hmm. that current systems in crypto don't fully take into account. I think like Evan from Disco has done a great job pushing some of this narrative. There are several others who have. When you talked in the beginning about the two main like sort of flawed solutions to the challenges around privacy that we see today, Mm -hmm. regulation and then like privacy by design, I'm curious, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've kind of seen like cases for both of those made in crypto, I'm sure. But you were talking about incentive design as actually like this better solution. And so I'm really curious when you think about the crypto landscape, like what do you think will actually make a difference and mm-hmm. an impact as far as actions that can be taken that are like mm-hmm. going to make sure that people design systems that do take into account all of these like challenges and, and better patterns? Yeah. Okay.
1: There's like two ways. in that I wanna go about answering this and like, I need both of them. So I'm gonna try to get through it. The first part is I see a lot of effort to create coordination mechanisms. Like basically the Soulbound tokens paper was an effort to enable better coordination in communities. And I feel like it's putting the card before the horse. It's like, let's figure out coordination before we've actually figured out how to build technology products that are pro-social that allow us the basic modicum like decency of consent. Like let's solve for that first. And once we've figured out how to give people the consent that they require to have dignity, like, I'm firm on this, like, if you are denied the ability to consent to something, whether it's physical touch or cognitive touch, and I think cognitive is very real, like, Things that happen in our cognition and the influence that that we are subjected to has a material impact on not just our emotions, but our health, our welfare, what we say to the world, and eventually becomes things like the genocide, <laughs> Myanmar, right? Or the capital riot. Like these are things that that come from cognitive influence in social media that become real world acts. So cognition is a very important vector that we have to subject to um, consent. Like the question of like, did I allow myself to be influenced this way? And we're always influenced, right? We're not islands. Like we go out into the world, we see influence, but we have context. Like I'm being influenced by an ad that I'm walking by a store, but I have the context of this is a store and it's telling me there's a sale. I can choose to act on that or not. What happens in digital media and what happens... In any like technologically mediated environment, is that that environment knows far more about the subject me than I know about it. It's it's essentially a sentient environment. My home is turning into a sentient environment where my vacuum knows ex- my entire floor plan knows if I've moved my couch out of like one of the rooms and I'm maybe turning it into like a like a baby room and then starts to show me different ads and I'm not even aware of why this is happening. I don't have the context. I can't take action on it. So. Until we figure out the baseline, like, dignity of giving people the right to consent to stuff, we shouldn't be solving kind of, like, second-order problems. Like, how do we coordinate better among communities so that they can put everything on chain and figure out who voted how and then, like, give them the appropriate, like, rights in our doubt? That's cool, but, like, we haven't solved the basic, like, Maslow hierarchy problem of like, do I have dignity? Let's solve for that. I really, really want people in crypto to start thinking about dignity and consent and agency as like first order problems, because that's the stuff we messed up the last time around in Web2. And like, why are we pretending that we're fixed? We're we're like, we're a reactionary force against Web2 if we're just going to recreate the same stuff, except making way more
0: pernicious and like Hmm. way more pervasive. Okay. So that's one. I have Um, a quick question, a follow-up question on that before we go on to the second one. So like I think some people in crypto would argue that owning your own private keys and the ability to sign transactions and all these types of things and the fact that no one can act on behalf of you is like consent in some ways. Obviously, that's not the full (laughs) – that is not capturing everything. So I'm curious like tactically Mm – I know this is probably kind of challenging, but what do you see that type of consent looking like in like the Web3 space? Is it like consent from a perspective of public data around, you know, transactions? Like I'm, I'm curious what that looks like just so that we can get mm-hmm. tangible with both of these. Yeah, definitely. So I think
1: that people in crypto overall misunderstand what data sovereignty means. Just because there is a purchase record of you buying a, like a digital asset or a home, like if there's a paper somewhere that says I bought this and it belongs to me, like if I can't control who comes into my home, right, then I don't really have sovereignty over it. They're sure there's a paper that says I bought it, but I have no control over it. So then we're like, okay, well, that's wrong. True ownership means that I can have like access controls over my home. Or like if there's a paper that attests to the fact that I purchased a, like, I don't know, a, a Nintendo, but... Anybody can use it at any time. Anyone can see that I have this Nintendo. Like, do I really have sovereignty over it? Like, I should be able to determine who borrows my stuff, who sees it, and who doesn't. Just because there's a record of purchase doesn't give me full sovereignty. So sovereignty isn't just about ownership. It's about also access control to it, permissions, the ability to say like, I can give you this book or not, or I'm going to take this thing away from you because I let you borrow it and give it to somebody else. If I can't do that with a digital asset, I don't really own it. I've simply paid for it. So
0: Hmm. what we
1: need to think about seriously is things like decentralized access controls and permissions levels and the kinds of things that like seasoned information security professionals think about. It's like levels of assurance, under which conditions can people see these things? Do they have the right role or like qualification to see this information? Does the person have the requisite trustworthiness to access this information? If we can't figure that part out, then all we've done is like put together a really nice spreadsheet of who owns things, but it's not real ownership if you have no control over the things that you own.
0: Yeah. Even like, I'm super curious what the second piece of this is, but just following up on that, when I even think about the most recent Tornado Cash situation, for anyone who isn't familiar, basically, Tornado Cash is this like mixing service that helps anonymize money. So you could put in like one ETH and it will spit out mm-hmm. one ETH. And it ideally, you're not supposed to be able to track the one ETH that mm-hmm. it spits out back to the first address. And the US government recently just sanctioned Tornado Cash GitHub, like shut down a bunch of accounts that were contributors to it. And what's interesting about that when you talk about like consent and sovereignty and what it means to have these access controls is you could even argue that like, so there's been this whole thing that people who are now interacting with Tornado Cash, the way that you sort of might deduce that someone is interacting with it is you are getting the money that is coming out of Tornado Cash because, like, you're probably sending it to your own account. Mm -hmm. And so people are now sending money to other people through Tornado Mm -hmm. Cash just to, like, sort of say, fuck you. And what's so interesting about that is, like, the U.S. government is now potentially reading that. And if they don't have the context to understand that people are doing that in the first place, they're coming to completely wrong conclusions about people who are completely innocent and, I mean, I use the term innocent in the US government's lens. I think, Mm -hmm. in general, you are innocent if you use tornado cash period. But point being, like, even reading off of the chain requires an amount of context and if you are going to, like, enforce something Mm -hmm. that you're reading in a public space and you don't even have the context required to do it, that Mm -hmm. alone is concerning. Context collapse.
1: Absolutely. Um, this is 100% this idea of a dragnet of, like, let's just collect everything on everyone so that we can pinpoint the minority of people that misbehave. Let's subject all of us to a giant panopticon. That This is insane to me. There was a, a program that the Pentagon ran years ago, um, like, before 2005. It was called Total Information Awareness. And the idea was, like, to collect all the emails, all of the, like, Internet traffic, credit cards, like just really have the full context so that if anything happens, the government can always just look back and figure out, okay, it was this person on this date, we have the information. It's called total information awareness. So Congress struck it down because there was just this huge like outcry against it. But then quite literally everything that it was is what Google now is. (laughs) Like it just exists, Mm. but like with chromatic colors and like better branding. And (laughs) um, part of the reason that it's okay is because you kind of have, you feel like you have a choice in it. Like I choose to use Google for my Gmail or for search. So like, it's kind of okay. I'm all right with it. But it literally is exactly what total information awareness was. And there's a really interesting talk that Moxie Marlinspike gives in the DEF CON I want to say it was 2013 conference, please look this up. It's so worth looking into. It's still entirely relevant. So 2013 DEF CON, Moxie, Marlon, Spike talking about the one-to-one like relationship between total information awareness and Google. So we tend to talk from like two mouths (laughs) as government when we talk about privacy, like Biden's executive order is a really interesting case in point. I think it was sections one and two talk about protecting people and privacy and all these wonderful things that make you feel like, wow, okay, like government's actually starting to take crypto seriously and they might want to protect privacy. And then I think it was section seven or maybe it was five that was talking about needing to augment the anti-money laundering and know your customer regulations so that government can get better at fighting crime. Well, those two things are actually at odds. If you are requiring companies to collect more information than strictly necessary on every single person, so you can find the few people that are stealing or the few bad actors, then you can't also talk about protecting privacy. You can't also talk about expecting people to believe you that like you're not forcing cent- a centralization and forcing humans to subject themselves to having to trust centralized companies that have treated their information poorly in the past. But government is doing this, forcing, forcing this trust, forcing us to be able to basically say, okay, well, I can't have any privacy. If I want to be private, then I have to be fully in cash, right? Um, and I really, frankly, don't understand why there's this dragnet against tornado cash, or crypto, really, because across the pond in Europe, they're like trying to outlaw all privacy coins. If you're doing that, then just make cash illegal, too, because that's private. Like who I give $10 to is entirely private. So why is that still legal, but I can't transact privately? That's never really been possible for me to square <laughs> entirely. And also, it's just really funny to me that the EU, the architects of the GDPR, which by the way, terrible, because it lulls people into thinking that someone out there, some like person that knows more about privacy than they do has decided to like, issue an edict and finally protect them. That's what they've been waiting for. So it, it's like this false idea that they're not being protected, but it does absolutely nothing for your privacy. All it's done is like make our like experience of the internet worse. So
0: Yeah. Crazy time. <laughs> I want to, that makes me think about something that I want to follow up on around like education. But yeah. before we do that, I'm curious what the second piece of being <laughs> tactical is. I've loved yeah. this rabbit hole. I've, yeah. I've absolutely adored it.
1: Oh my gosh. I think you and I are walking like side by side because I was about to pull us back and be like, wait, let me tell you about the second thing. I um, love it. Yeah. I, I've been ruminating on this idea of standards a lot lately. I think. It's high time for technologists, and I don't just mean crypto, but crypto included, for technologists to take themselves more seriously. And what I mean by that is every other industry that is considered maybe critical infrastructure or really important to human thriving or really important to reducing human suffering, like medicine or law or civil engineering, these professions, like they're August, right? And like require you to have taken courses in ethics, especially medicine and law, um, and the ethics aren't like laughable, like, aha, cute, we're going to do some ethics because it's like, I'm in social impact out. Like, no, it's real deal ethics. And if you like break the like ethical expectations that the industry imposes on you, then you lose your license. And People are proud to be able to say that like, I'm a civil engineer, I built this building and I know it's not going to burn down. I know that it's not going to crumble on the people on it. Like I have consistently built safe, beautiful buildings for like 20, 30 years and no one's died, right? That's a point of pride for an engineer. We don't have similar pressures in a software engineering profession. And it's not because the software engineers, like the ones that, like I said earlier at Facebook, who, you know, ended up building some products that are incredibly persuasive and very good at extracting what captures our attention or what makes us angry and then amplifying it. It's not like these guys, like, wanted to destroy civil consensus and lead to any kind of violence. It's just that they were never exposed to the discipline of mind required to ask the right questions of the types of tools that effectively become human experiments at scale. Like technology is a scaled human experiment. It encodes certain behavior patterns and disincentivizes other behavior patterns, right? Like if you know that you are going to be rewarded for posting a certain type of content, you post more of that type of content and you post less of maybe the more authentic content that is more interesting to your group of friends, but it's not as performative for your audience. Now you're like this performer. And, you know, tech, digital tech is not the only technology that encodes certain values. Like there's this really interesting article that Daniel Schmachtenberger is really thoughtful, um, I guess, public intellectual. um, He recently wrote an article about how technology is not values neutral. And he uses the plow as an extended analogy, like how the plow changed our relationship to animals where before our relationship to animals was very much more like humans are a part of like nature and animals and everyone's sort of in balance. Um, The plow mechanized our relationship with animals and we had to kind of beat the animals in order to get them to drive the plow. And so it put us into a position of power and then kind of reduced the relative dignity of the animal compared to the human and encoded a certain type of value. That we have towards animals because of a technology called the plow. Similarly, like the printing press, different values that were actually very scary to the powers that be that felt threatened by anyone being able to publish. So, tech's not values neutral. It is a human experiment at scale, but yet the people that build tech don't have exposure to things like ethics or public choice or behavioral economics, like the way that people make decisions right now versus the future and discounting the future. Like These are the types of questions that are really, really, really important for technologists to think about, but it's just not part of the software engineering education. And so we end up with people who are building these scaled experiments, but having no exposure to thinking about like public policy or economics whatsoever. And what do we do about that? Well, we can either wait for the ivory tower to figure this out and that's never going to happen or we can become responsible as an industry and decide like well we need to set up some standards like for the things we build like not to say like this is exactly how we must build everything because then you don't have innovation but you have a baseline you have like a floor like you know that if you're going to build something then you need to have like a certain type of privacy or I don't know Consent control or a way to secure information or a certain menu of options that is not manifestly different than an, another menu of options that a user might face in a different app, so that they have to learn 50 different menus. And so, therefore, it's just too much information. And they'll never actually take control over their preferences. Like some baselines, and I'm not the one to write these, but it's probably time for a, I, I certainly asked the right questions about this. Like it's time for our industry to grow up and say, okay. What's the standard ethical baseline for like architecting technologies that enhance human thriving and reduce human suffering? Like, what do we not want to do again? Because we have the benefit of hindsight of 15 years of digital media and social media at this point, that we're not flying blind. Like we're really not. We have information, we can act on it. So that's the industry. And then there's also the people that ask things of the industry. And this is usually the funders, right? The like venture capitalists have a role to play in this because whereas right now, overwhelmingly, the the incentive is to drive growth to the exclusion of other metrics that you might measure, which is like happiness or sociality or metrics we haven't even come up with, we're driving growth. And that's good. That makes sense. You do have to encourage growth because as a venture capitalist, you have to find one of your investments to carry the rest of the portfolio that you expect to fail. So there's this like overwhelming pressure to grow so that you can like pay for the other like failed experiments. But what does that not encourage? What does that discourage? And the trade-off level at the design level where the product manager or product designer has to make a design choice of like, okay, well, this will either lead to a lot more people using my product or this will actually ensure that every single person that I already have has like robust choice and I'm respecting like their options as a human being. Like how do I incentivize them to make the pro-social longer term choice over the shorter term like this will lead to growth kind of choice?
0: Yeah, that's always what comes to mind for me is like in my mind, I think, yes, making these types of choices is what's most in line with the industry. I think a lot of people feel that way. But then when push comes to shove and you have like nine months of runway left and you need to show traction in order to get to the next series
1: of Mm -hmm. funding,
0: it's like a really, I think, challenging moment to be in. And part of me thinks that like social norms in the space are really valuable for that reason because ideally – In order to even get traction or in order to not be shamed by the industry, ideally, Mm -hmm. you are acting in like a certain set of ways that people find okay. For example, there's no like law against storing users' private keys as far as I know. Mm -hmm. But when Slope Finance recently was found out to have been storing users' private keys in like unencrypted plain text, Mm -hmm. that was just like – oh, that's (laughs) terrible. And a hack, of course, showed that. But like I would guess that people aren't going to be using them anymore and they'll probably die. Maybe not, but I would imagine that. And that's like actually like a social norm around architecture of tech. Mm -hmm. So that comes to mind. But are there other mechanisms? You mentioned like uh, venture capitalists, maybe like in looking at different types of metrics but I'm curious what other mechanisms we can actually use in like the short term to try to account for some of these like longer term consequences that right now don't feel like that trade off is quite right.
1: Yeah, so I think that first that example that you gave was actually a dead bodies example. There was such a clear demonstration of like acute harm that it was very easy to say like like they're standing in that like you probably go to court over that. <laughs> I'm not, a, yeah. like, I'm not a lawyer, but like that's, that's a dead body, right? Like the, mo- the more difficult things and the much more harmful things are the ones that accumulate over time and that we realize like years down the line, like, oh crap, this is why we are like influenced or this is why we're fractured or this is why we can't talk to one another. So it's kind of a, of a different thing. Um, in terms of more mechanisms to incentivize the right choices, I hazard to say that that company that's like, under the knife to show traction, so they can raise another round, might not be as under the knife if they weren't being undercut by companies that are taking the shortcut, right? Right. If, if that shortcut isn't available, if we start to treat certain ideas about pro-social values as a commons that is to be protected, um, and this is not just privacy, right? Privacy is like this, like really poor stand-in for a whole set of values that that provide dignity and consent and agency to human beings. So I just use privacy as like a stand-in, but it's it's a whole other thing. And I, I like to now refer to it as agentic technologies. So if like right now it's a collective action problem, right? We can say all these beautiful things about like techno-social values, but um, every company is looking to outcompete the other company, which is great. That makes sense. It it means that we are able to also outcompete economies that don't prioritize or enable competition that have central planning and therefore like less inspiring, less interesting products, and that is ultimately fail. Fantastic. But some things shouldn't actually be allowed. Like we have got to a point where like we don't allow industries to just like pollute rivers and lakes and kill people because it's you know releasing carcinogenic chemicals. Like we got to that point. We know there's harm. That's a very clear dead body. So you can't just outcompete somebody to be the biggest polluter. You don't get to keep your job, right? You can't out-compete somebody to build an unsafe aircraft that falls from the sky. You don't get to keep your job. So I think it's important that we decide to figure out what we can't out-compete against. And I don't want the government to do this. I don't want a bunch of legislators that have other jobs to do and are not the experts in technology, to figure this out for us, because when that happens, we get laws like tornado cash is sanctioned and the GDPR is like this huge theatrical idea of like protecting your privacy when it's actually doing absolutely nothing to do of the sort, right? So it's not for people who are outside the industry to figure out how to keep people safe. It's not for me and you to figure out how to build an aircraft that isn't going to fall out of the sky. We leave that to the people building the aircraft. We trust them. And I want to start trusting engineers, software engineers, to Align on some ideas of like what we definitely know leads to harm, and they won't go there, even if it means that it's the product, it becomes more viral or becomes more popular overnight or anything like that. Some things have to be taken off the table in order to protect the commons. We just don't have a digital commons right now. We have physical commons that we're not that good at protecting anyway. You know, we talk about the environment, we kind of have an idea of what the commons is there, but it's always still like subject to adverse pressure we definitely don't have a digital commons. And that's a conversation that the technologists have to start, not Washington and not the EU.
0: Yeah. I think before we wrap up, like something that comes to mind on that note that I think is an interesting dynamic slash challenge is it's one thing for people to act in a certain way – because, oh gosh, how do I put this? Like (laughs) basically the whole public goods and tragedy, Mm of the common stuff is Mm -hmm. like really interesting here because it will always be in the best interest of one individual to do something that is against everyone else's benefit. And it kind of reminds me of like accelerationism and some Mm -hmm. of like the weird internet subcultures that have popped up recently where Mm -hmm. it only really takes one person doing something that is fucked up or one group that because of the way the internet scales, can take like a lot of people down. And so tragedy of the commons no longer becomes the common, like the original common where it was like this, Mm -hmm. you know, piece of land. It really becomes like tragedy for humanity as a whole. Mm. And that's where I struggle is where like when you see people like accelerationists who are trying to like, which is obviously just one subculture, but who are proving that it takes one individual to do this. And I the The pessimistic part of my brain is like, oh God, I don't know how we're gonna get people to abide by this when people are already treating fucked up acts on the internet as like quote unquote performance art in the name of accelerationism. Mm. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Oh, I have. I really have so little insight into like the like recesses of the criminal mind. <laughs> like I, I have no idea <laughs> um, how to like prevent recidivism and criminality or like just being overall a dick. And I think I don't know. I'm actually. I think I'm much better at helping people who are definitely not dicks to realize where certain <laughs> ways that they might act might actually accidentally result in things that are not in alignment with their like very kind and nice and thoughtful values. So that's like my stance on things. It's like I hang out with and interact with incredibly thoughtful and empathetic and intelligent people and my job In this space is just to say, hey, these things that you are planning, which are so amazing and great because you are you have this idea of like your ideal customer and you want to build. I want to help you to see around the corner to the potential externalities, to the people that you're not building for and how they will be impacted, to the things you're just not looking at because your job is to like look at the ideal customer profile and ship the product directly to them but everything you build has an externality. And I just want to help you sum up those externalities so you can make the right design choices. But I'm building for and working with and educating people who have like the right intentions and the right motivations. And that's why I'm in crypto. Like the whole point uh, here was like, oh, we didn't love the other thing so much. Let's build back better. So my job or the way I see it is to say, so Remember when you said you wanted to build back better? Like here are the things that you're currently doing that are going to perpetuate the other system, so let's like steer away from that and go towards the other thing. <laughs> I have so little to say about like people who are just actively trolling and like messing with everyone's enjoyment of their lives. What what would you say? <laughs> How do you disincentivize that?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the right answer. I mean, I guess you could also make the argument like to the point you made earlier that like the majority of the platforms that have probably done the most harm Mm -hmm. were not decisions made by people with malicious intent. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
0: I think there's probably an argument there. But this is something that I struggle with a lot is just like how – Kevin Awake likes to quote this, which I really like, Mm -hmm. which is something from Vitalik that said like build systems that are a thousand times like easier to defend than they are to attack. Yeah. Um, That's what comes to mind here. I don't know the right answer, but I think really strong social norms, especially when we think about like using a product is consenting to it, ideally, not necessarily today, but hopefully in the future, like those types of values are much more clear. And so attacks on those values become just something that people don't want to buy into in the first place.
1: Yeah. I think it's going to be really hard to build systems that are like easy to defend when we default to allowing every single technology we interact with to know the maximum information possible about us. And that's, you know, bringing it back to tornado cash that is predicated on the idea that we'll always have a government that is more or less in line with like pro-social ends and isn't trying to kill people and isn't trying to imprison people. But that is a very optimistic scenario. And the same thing I would say about Amazon, like I've been seeing people reacting to the iRobot acquisition as like, well, so who cares? It's great that Amazon's going to be able to give me better recommendations. But that is a very high trust model for a company that you always believe is going to be more or less, I don't know if you could call Amazon neutral, but at least not like, actively deleterious toward your life and like society. It's, these things make us very easy to attack. Um, And in aggregate, the vast amount of data that I call data exhaust that just floats about as a result of our every single interaction makes us incredibly vulnerable for bad actors. And that's not bad actors who are like the scammers who want to steal your money or criminals. I mean, bad actors like foreign governments that are looking to find the fault lines in civil society and open societies, especially, and figure out which narratives to exploit and how so that things like election fraud can happen. So coming back to like why I'm here in the first place, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, that was all about a bad actor, in which case Russia identifying the fault lines in American society and exploiting them. Racial fault lines, commercial fault lines, political fault lines, everything was up for exploitation because of the vast richness of data that was made available by a group of technologists at Facebook that had no idea what they had built.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. And I love that it just puts a perfect bow (laughs) on this both optimistic but also critical, like dive into this. I think it's really important to be thinking about both. So I so appreciate Mm. the like optimism and seeing a future of a world that could be better while also Mm. acknowledging you know, the critical flaws in our current system. And hopefully I think if you have like an optimistic lens, you're much more likely to build a future that actually looks like that than mm-hmm. if you're like totally pessimistic. So Absolutely. I so appreciate that. I, wouldn't, I
1: honestly wouldn't have the energy to do any of this work or care for it if I didn't feel there was a, like a reason to do it. And that reason is optimism. Like I literally think that we can still change things. And if I didn't believe that or think that, then I wouldn't be motivated
0: to do this. I'd do something else. I'm very grateful that you (laughs) found your way into this space and are like really thinking critically about a lot of these important things. Where can people learn more about you and the work that you're doing? I know you also write on Mirror. Where can people Mm -hmm. find you? Yeah, I'm
1: at anna.mirror.xyz. So that's one A, A -A A-N-A.mirror.xyz. And then Anastasia, like the movie, Anastasia U., Uh, That's my Twitter handle. And I'd love it if people would check out Lighthouse, Lighthouse Labs. Um, So lighthouse.world, which is the URL. We are building the navigation engine for the open metaverse. We didn't even get into the metaverse at all, but everything I think about now and work on is actually uh, like telescoping it like 10 years out and going, how is this going to work in the metaverse? How can we build an immersive, persistent environment that is, again, pro-social, and increases human dignity and decreases human suffering. So, yeah, my mental model is like, how does this work in 3D? And does this still let us live our best lives in 3D?
0: I absolutely love that. Maybe we'll have to do a follow up episode on all that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so good to chat.
1: Yeah, this is great, Chase. Thanks so much for inviting me on.
0: If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcast I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.